Fairy Sherry here. Thanks for tuning in to Pink Noise, a radio show dedicated to amplifying the voices of those who have mined and shined their inner gold. I am recording this opening in Victoria, BC, during a long-awaited reunion with my Canadian family, who I'd not seen since Thanksgiving 2019. I would like to acknowledge and respect the Coast Salish peoples on whose traditional territory my family resides. From the moment I first met Carly in a Zoom breakout room during a community circle of conscious leaders, it was obvious to me that she is following the thread of aliveness in her life. She is living her values and beliefs in a way that inspires others to do the same. Carly represents the epitome of an ideal Pink Noise guest in this way. With her own podcast, she shares what she cares about. And as you will hear in this episode, she begins by highlighting her role in shifting workplace culture so that more employees feel safe to bring their whole self to work. When individuals feel safe to show up, more solutions are on the table. Wider perspectives get seen, and basically, more humans are considered so that we can begin to step away from white supremacy ideals, where the solutions only benefit one race of people. She asks me about my journey of understanding racial justice, and from there, we move into her heartbeat topic of climate change. I'm impressed by the common threads these topics carry and how she weaves them together for me to see that how we treat ourselves impacts how we treat others. How we feed ourselves impacts how we feed the planet. Meaning also, garbage in, garbage out. Awareness is the key to change and how it only takes 3.5% of the population to unite as like-minded catalysts to launch a movement and make a ruckus. And you know I was put on this planet to make a ruckus. So let me grab my megaphone and beam out more wisdom from yet another passionate human. Carly Howick, welcome to the Pink Noise Radio Show. Thank you so much, Sherry. I'm so delighted to be here. What do you want to say about how you show up to do the work in the world that you do? I lead from my heart and love. And so all the work that I do, I think, is really coming from that space. It's also coming from a space of how to be in service. And I've been using the word, how can I be in joyful service? Because sometimes I can be in like, serve, 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 give, 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 but that can be depleting at times. And how do I do it with more joy, which means that I'm doing it in a way that is prioritizing the service I bring to others, but also like, how am I serving myself too? You know, and and what I mean by that is how am I caring for myself? Because there's definitely been times in my work where I was putting so much energy on the other 
and giving and the companies that I was serving and the managers and the leaders that I was saying yes more to them than I was saying yes to me and my desires. And so love, joyful service, and I would say authenticity, you know, authenticity, vulnerability, however you want to call it, are, uh, are ways that I feel like I show up and they have been reflected back to me. And I guess one other thing that often people share is they tell me that I'm very courageous. I have a lot of bravery and the spaces I'm willing to go, the conversations I'm willing to have. So that's what I'll share. Mm. What I'm really getting about that is a, a list of values, things that you, that you hold dear. I, I see values as the how you get the what done, mm. right? So, um, so what I'm, I'm curious about now is to hear about more of the, the what. If, if being in joyful service and leading with the heart as a courageous and authentic leader who's willing to be vulnerable, what is all of that in service of doing? Mm-hmm. Well, as you know, I just debuted my first book about three months ago, and I bring it up because it's really what I'm standing in. It's what matters to me most. It's the legacy that I want to be putting my effort and my action around, and this is the what. And so really what I feel inspired by and what I'm hoping that I can support the shift towards is how do we create a workplace in a world that works for everyone because it doesn't currently and how do we also live in greater harmony with the planet and one of the reasons that I've really focused my career on leadership and business is because I feel like it's one of the greatest levers for positive change in the world And I do believe that business can be a force for good. And I see it happening all the time. But there are some major structures and systems that need to be hospiced out. Uh, Using the the framework of one of my mentors, Lynn Twist, she often uses that word of of hospicing out. Lynn Twist is the um, co-founder of the Pachamama Alliance. She's the author of The Soul of Money. And she also happened to write the foreword for my book. So. so, you know, that, that comes back to how are we creating safe spaces, psychologically safe spaces for people to really bring their whole selves to work in ways that they may have not felt comfortable to do. You know, there's, there's covering that happens innately in the workplace because we have such an innate desire to belong. and. And we also have a, uh, an intersection, I think, in the workplace of a desire to belong, but there's also a survival component as well of, I don't want to be reprimanded or punished or rejected for my ideas because then I could lose my job. And so there, it's like almost twofold because in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we have this survival need, food, shelter, water, which a job provides through certain monetary you know, benefits and reinforcements. And then we also have this greater need to belong. 
So it's like those two come in at the workplace in such a big way of maybe not allowing us to show up as we are, to share our true lived experience, to have a different perspective because we're covering those parts of ourselves because it's not safe. And it also doesn't feel safe to fail. So mm -hmm. it perpetuates this value of perfectionism. Mm -hmm. Or imposter syndrome, which we know is so rampant, you know, where, where we're looking at everybody else and saying, I don't really think I belong to be here. These are all really smart people. How did I get here? 70% of folks, at least in a lot of the spaces that I've been working in, Silicon Valley tech companies, have identified they have imposter syndrome. Yeah. Isn't it Brené Brown who talks about the importance of vulnerability in terms of being innovative and creative? That if you're going into problem solving, mm -hmm. that it's about practice and taking risks and getting it wrong mm -hmm. and trying again in order to come up with solutions that haven't existed before. Mm -hmm. But I would also say that's what's been found um, to be one of the most important aspects of a high-performing team and, and thus a successful organization is that ability to innovate and create. But if we don't have psychological safety there, which Amy Edmondson, who's another mentor in my life, she has been really developing this concept and researching it for 25 years at Harvard. And they found that psychological safety has to be present for these teams to be high performing and successful. So they, so they go hand in hand. Yes, we need to be vulnerable to be able to support that particular outcome, you know, in our organizations and if we don't have psychological safety, we're not going to feel like it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to make mistakes because I'm not going to be punished because people do actually have my back because there is an openness in conversation because we do value inclusion, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so let's talk about the ingredients of psychological safety. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I am certified in this particular framework that Amy Edmondson has developed. Um, and I do assessments with folks, you know, uh, whenever I, so basically in the work that I'm doing in the world for the last decade, I've worked with a lot of different companies, you know, LinkedIn, Pixar, Genentech, uh, a lot in the tech space, but also high growth startups. And I've been brought in for various different challenges, but usually there is some dis-ease that's happening in the company. And I think of it as, you know, dis-ease, but it's also disease because just like the human body is a system, the workplace is a system and the greater environment is a system. And so if we have a leader who's acting pretty unconscious or let's say toxic, um, that's gonna have a ripple effect with the team, with the culture. And so I'm always trying to gauge what is the level of psychological safety? Because based on that, then I know what training, what intervention, what transformation is possible at that company. 
And so the four domains or dimensions of psychological safety really is, is there an openness in having the conversation? Do people have my back? Do I feel they have my back, right? That can be subjective. Um, Is it safe to make a mistake? You named that front and center, super wise. And is it okay for me to bring my whole self? That's the inclusion piece. And then there's actually, you know, numbers that showcase whether that's in the quadrant that's high psychological safety or it's not high psychological safety. And then how do we solve for that? And that's where I come in. You know, it's like I do the baseline and then I say, oh, well, these are skill sets that we're not employing. You know, there's a lack of empathy. There's a lack of emotional intelligence. Um, we're too focused on the bottom line versus the connection that we're having with our team members. How do we shift that? Are we shying away from real conversations? Probably so. So how do, how do we actually create some accountability and a new set of communication principles that we're agreeing to, that this is what we're actually going to bring forth, that there are social contracts then for psychological safety. So we actually can be more vulnerable and make mistakes and innovate. It sounds like the path that you're on is about creating these workplaces where the, the individuals inside of them are healthier. They're healthier because, like you said, when their safety needs are met, their psychological safety needs are met, they can bring more of themselves to work, which means they're being seen, heard, and understood for who they are, which gives us a greater sense of self, a greater sense of self-acceptance. And so when you create larger bodies of people that all feel that way, you now can have a shift in culture. There's something that I read um, that you had written about creating this tipping point, like creating the tipping point of when you have enough people, when you have enough people caring about the impact of how they're being in the world and even Mm -hmm. how they're treating themselves. Mm -hmm. That's when you can have a larger systemic shift. Yes. Yeah. So you're talking about the, the 3.5% rule. And this was research that was documented in these social experiments of like, how do you really shift and create a movement in the more dominant culture? And there were some professors at Harvard that found that if 3.5% of the population was acting or choosing a certain thing, that could have a huge impact on the dominant mindset and the dominant behavior to shift. So if we all decide, okay, no more, no more, you know, cars that are taking gasoline, like we're all going to focus on electric and electric charging stations and electrification. I mean, it's, it, it hasn't been found yet, but like, I would love to see that shift. Love, love, love to see that shift. In in my time of being an adult, Mm -hmm. I have seen a massive cultural shift away from smoking cigarettes. Like as an example of a behavior, when you watch programs like Mad Men on TV and you watched how casually 
a pregnant woman, a businessman, anyone would just light up in their bedroom, in the office, without even a second thought. Mm. While they're sitting in the lobby waiting for someone and having a meeting, they'd light up a cigarette. I mean, look at that shift. And, you know, I wasn't alive in the 50s, but I'm watching the show now and have had enough reference points to 50 years ago. And it's pretty fantastic. I mean, I can be in large social settings now and there's no one kind of going for that experience. I see that as a huge win. Yeah, definitely. For humanity. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's a great example. You know, you also spoke to this part of like who we're being. And so again, the the body of work that I've been really developing and is in the book, it really starts with that inner work. And I call it the inner game. And I'm not the first person to use that word, but the inner game really does rule the outer game. And so when we're thinking about psychological safety, belonging, and why that's important, um, why that's important to me is because I feel like unless we are all able to come together in this way, that is prioritizing social justice, environmental responsibility, based on the climate science and some of the big complexities we're facing as a humanity, we're not gonna be able to solve for that unless there is enough safety to be able to come together and see that we're all needed at that table to create the solutions that our world needs now. But there is a requirement to be able to feel safe enough in ourselves, right? To have these qualities on the inside of potentially self-awareness, emotional intelligence, a growth mindset, leading from love with ourselves first, um, knowing what our yes and our no is for me. And then we can show up with those qualities on the outside. And I really think of it as like, this new operating system that we're all working with, we're integrating. And it's almost like creating the inner belonging. Like I'm really accepting and embracing all these parts of myself so that I have more capacity to step up, to show up. And I have the ability to hold space for others. And that's the outer belonging. Right there, you just named the reasons why I'm passionate about the work that I do. Because it is all about the inner work and it's any path to self-acceptance and self-love is always the answer. Mm -hmm. The ripple effect is incredible. And there's so much mindset work around the inner critic and the stories that we tell ourselves that get in the way of having more grace and compassion mm-hmm. on the inside. And then, and then you add on any generational trauma that has us feeling less than awesome about mm-hmm. who we are and what our role has been in society. And I, I think it's a, it's a, it can be a hard path to walk 
to get to that holy grail of self-love. But when you talked about integrating all of your parts, I think that's, that's the biggest deep work, that shadow work, acknowledging the parts that you don't like or that you deny or that you pretend they're not there. How, how has that process been for you? Can you tell me what it's looked like for, to go on that journey yourself? Yeah, um, I have to keep meeting it all the time, you know, and it's, it's really being mindful of my narrative and my thoughts and just trying to be as curious as I can be and noticing when my biases come up and noticing when my privilege is here, being a white cisgendered woman who you know, has been able to have the opportunity to be in some really incredible spaces. You know, I, I've been an instructor at Stanford for eight years. I've worked with some of these incredible tech companies. I was able to actually just leave my home that I've been living in in North Carolina, sublet my house, come to Oregon for two months to sublet here to see, is this a better fit for me? That's a lot of privilege to be able to do that. Um, and so I think it's, it's just, just noticing the places in myself where maybe I'm othering, you know, and, and really taking responsibility for that and noticing where, where is that coming from? And usually it's coming from a place of, I don't feel safe. So I'm judging, you know, I'm othering that person because for some reason I haven't decided that I can bring my whole self, you know? So, so I'm creating a barrier between myself and that other. And once I'm aware that that's there, I can shift it. There's a practice that I, that I do um, a lot for myself that I've brought into lots of spaces with other folks. I write about it in chapter six in my book, which is the inner game of authenticity, but it's, it is the shadow work as you spoke. It's, it's noticing when there's a part of somebody else that's triggering me for some reason. And for me, it's getting really curious. Why is that part of them triggering me? Oh, it's because it's a part of myself I haven't fully embraced. Because I have that part too. And maybe they're still going to not be like my best friend. Like I'm not going to want to hang out with them all the time, right? Or I'm not going to choose to have them in my inner circle. But it's really important for me to just own that I have that part too. And not to other them. I keep using that word, but that feels, that feels right, especially in the climate that we're in. And, you know, Sherry, it's so interesting too. I'd love to bring this in because we are doing this podcast on Juneteenth and we're both two white women who I know care about racial justice and social justice. And so I'm wondering if we could actually take it in that direction a little bit of um, the shadow pieces maybe, or even the things we've learned in the last year around what has happened amidst the racial injustice, the systemic oppression. I, I know I've had a journey with that. I feel curious about yours, if you're willing to, to talk a little bit about it and, and why it matters to you. Thank you. Thank you. That was one of your podcast episodes from 2020 that I started listening to was a solo episode you did 
on the topic of racial justice mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. things that often we don't talk about. Mm-hmm. And that was true for me. Mm-hmm. I, can, I can admit some things about my journey growing up as a white, cisgendered, English-speaking Canadian girl. I was never around people of color. They weren't in my schools, they weren't in my churches, they weren't in my community groups, they weren't living in my neighborhood. And therefore, I had no experience in which to observe or witness any biases. And I grew up thinking, well, I'm not racist. Racism doesn't even exist. And it's really embarrassing to see how underinformed I was when we were living on stolen land of the indigenous people Mm. who um, were there generations before the three generations of my Canadian ancestors came to Canada. I do remember hearing derogatory things said about First Nations people and the way that they lived and the way that they kept their land and their homes. And once I learned three years ago, I saw a documentary in Vancouver, BC during their film festival called Dawnland. And it was a documentary about the residential schools. And I had no idea that the children were ripped out of their tribes Mm. and stripped of their culture, their clothing, forced to speak English, separated from siblings, from everything they knew in order to uh, whitewash them. It's, it's really hard to see that that was all at the hands of white men in power who thought they knew better. And that that is part of my generational DNA. After George Floyd's murder, I was in a meeting with a group of authentic relating leaders and we facilitate circles together. We are from kind of all over the the region. And we started asking the question, what what role do we wanna play in being better allies? And we talked for three months about what it could look like and we, 12 of us white folk formed a group and we decided to self-educate and created an outline for six months to meet for two hours on Sunday nights, Hmm. um, to read books, to break them down, to pay for BIPOC community leaders to speak and deliver content for us. Beautiful. And so I've been walking that path for the last eight months now. And through that have come into a greater awareness about what it means to be a better ally and a more inclusive leader. And to name some of my privileges as you just did. Mm -hmm. I had this physical reaction, so positive, vibrating, hearing you name the privilege to move from North Carolina to Oregon to try out a new place in the country where you might wanna live. 
-hmm. And I noticed my body kind of even relaxed hearing you name that. So often with guests, we talk about taking time to explore our spirituality or our connection to nature, the time that we might spend in meditation or the privilege for me in having a float tank membership where I can go into a sensory deprivation tank and have my most, uh, my, my most Zen moments mm -hmm. are in that space. And that is a socioeconomic privilege. Mm -hmm. So what I'm really enjoying about what I've said yes to is the expansiveness of my awareness now. My head's not in the sand. I'm, I'm following different speakers, different leaders, reading different books. Like the um, TED talk I sent you about mm -hmm. the woman who talked about her authentic self and what it meant for her to bring her black bodied authentic self to the workplace and how she did not feel safe to do so. Right. And that changes my lens when I talk about the practice of setting the mask down of who you think you're supposed to be for someone else. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thanks for sharing your journey and what you've been learning. There's so much more that's just the tip of the iceberg. Of course, of course. Yeah. You? Well, I feel like I've been really trying to show up as an ally in the last few years, more and more. And I'm aware that in the allyship space, I can't really call myself an ally. I have to be actually given that by by someone from a more marginalized group or person, but it's my intention. And even the book that I wrote, I think of it as a how to be a conscious and inclusive leader. And there's a lot around, you know, bias, calling in microaggressions, subtle acts of exclusion. How do we really have those brave exchanges? But I feel like in the last year, you know, that deepened more for me as well. And trying to, I mean, honestly, even just with my podcast, noticing that the folks that I'd been inviting onto the podcast, they were people that I knew. They were people in my network that I believed were really embodying this conscious and inclusive way. And many of them were, were other uh, were leaders that I actually got to know and highlighted in the book. So that's that's really how the podcast came about. But I started to really notice I don't have a lot of people of color that I've been interviewing. And I felt embarrassed about that. And when I look at even my LinkedIn network, it's a very diverse network of folks. But in my inner circle, not so diverse. And I don't like that. And I didn't like that. And so it required me to really reach out more, invite folks of, you know, different orientations, um, people of color to be on the podcast, to have conversations with me, to really want to understand their lived experience. And, and not from a place of like, they need to educate me. I don't want to have it be a burden for them, but just like, I really want to get to know you. 
I want to get to know you. Who are you? Why, why are you choosing to show up in the way that you are? Why are you doing the work that you're doing? Just like I would with anybody else. And so just letting that curiosity lead me. And then also doing more and more of my own discovery and reading more books. And um, Misa Akbar was one of the podcast lectures that I had, I guess it was at the end of 2020. She wrote this beautiful book called Beyond Ally. It's really like a book for white folks who wanna be allies. And I just loved the frame and her book. And so really wanted to get to know her better and to really highlight her and her body of work to my community because it meant a lot to me. I also listened to this incredible documentary series that came out in 2017, really before its time. It was called Seeing Whiteness. And that was something I literally ate up (laughs) within two weekends. There were 10 different episodes and it just highlighted lots of pieces around being white. And that was incredibly transformative for me. So yeah, I think just checking things more, like just, just checking how I show up in conversations, how I enter a room and maybe even going out of my way a little bit more to open the door for someone of color if they happen to be walking, you know, just like, how do I invite um, more kindness, you know, more safety almost in how I'm interacting. Not that I'm, uh, I think, what do I want to say? Not that I'm excluding people consciously. I don't think that's how I show up in the world, but just noticing how it's been harder for them than it's been for me. And how do I create more of a welcoming? How do I create more of the invitation to get to know them than maybe I was doing in the past? I'm just being more proactive, extending myself more. I love how many points of reference you have to specific education that you were seeking out years ago. Mm-hmm. Taking this you know, 10 episode program from 2017 and really observing your network, not because you were asked to, but because you felt consciously aware and you wanted to do some research and go, what does it look like? And it sounds like you've made a specific conscious pivot Mm -hmm. to do outreach and invite more voices into your community that are different than yours, that have different cultures and different backgrounds and different lived experiences. Mm-hmm. I'm really impressed by that, Carly. Oh, thank you, Sherry. You know, it's also interesting too, is that um, I'd say the folks that are kind of in my inner circle that are also doing similar work that I'm doing, they're all in the DEI space. And I, I've chosen them. I feel grateful to have them in my life because they all care deeply about more equality, more inclusion, more diversity, more belonging. And I find those conversations just so nourishing for me. And when, and when I'm not able to have that orientation in some of my connections and conversations, I notice I don't wanna invest as much because I just feel like it's, it's so pivotal to the world that I wanna be supporting to build 
and to create. And it's going to take a lot of effort to shift that. You know, we, we have a lot of structures and systems, as I shared at the beginning, that need to be hospiced out. And I think what's so interesting, at least in the workplace, um, and on Juneteenth, you know, which is now a national holiday, is that, yeah, there's been a lot of a lot of investment and training on unconscious bias and microaggressions and all of that. And those trainings are great. They're bringing awareness, they're bringing, bringing education, but now how do we really shift the systems and structures um, that are now embedded in company culture where there's accountability around it, where we are changing how we are hiring folks, um, you know, where there is more of a focus on diverse talent and we are really increasing programs that do support belonging because if people don't feel like they belong and they're not welcomed, they're not going to want to stay, you know, working for those teams, for those companies. And so it feels like a business imperative, but it's also a worldwide imperative because again, we have some really big problems we need to solve for. And if we're not talking to each other, if we're not connecting, if we're not getting how this person's lived experience is different than mine, but that actually is giving them the knowledge and the perspective that they have that I don't, which is necessary to solve for this thing, we're not gonna get there. So I just feel like it's so crucial and important for where we are in the world and in the workplace right now. When I hear you talking about hospicing out these broken systems that aren't working because when they don't work for one, they, they're not working. They're not working for all. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. and I think that's what we've been overlooking for so long mm -hmm. is this system wasn't built. It wasn't designed for everyone. Mm -hmm. It was designed for a very specific group of people to benefit. And the more I learn about white supremacy culture and what the ingredients of white supremacy culture is, the more I see that the system was designed to benefit those who were white. Mm -hmm. And that's just the truth. And so the new systems need to be designed to benefit everyone. And when I hear you talk about it, Carly, I see this, this um, you know, unification that's required, this coming together and more folks with white skin need to be okay walking away from luxuries and indulgences that we have taken for granted. We have to be willing to do more with less mm -hmm. because we're the ones that have to change the culture. When I listen to your most recent panel on courageous leaders and climate action. Mm -hmm. I was really moved by some of the things that Rob had said specifically about the ecosystem of internal and external around polluting our bodies is the same as polluting our land. Yeah. Until we realize about the quality of food that we need to consume to be healthy bodies 
is the same thing as caring about the quality of the of the earth and the land and how we care for it that we're mm-hmm. this ecosystem and so getting enough people to pay attention to the ecosystem of inner and outer mm-hmm. i thought that was a really profound metaphor so the impetus for the work that i you know really want to be doing in the world and also the impetus for the book was was climate change it's it's the biggest problem our humanity is facing there is an urgency and it affects all of us and it does not discriminate and what will happen is that as temperatures rise the people with the you know lower SES that are you know more marginalized um, people of color are going to be impacted more that's just how it works. Um, and so that again, creates the need for us to really create more equal systems so that we can solve for it. And so, yes, there is an ecosystem of like that internal ecosystem, the workplace ecosystem, but then the world ecosystem and how that's connected to the planet. And just like if we're not taking good care of how we're eating, if we're not also like feeding the mind, body, heart with these, you know, skills, or we could think of it as thoughts that are really supporting more inclusion and consciousness and how we're acting, it affects the whole. Yeah, I think that's what really struck me about those conversations is how interconnected everything is. And one of the areas of my life that I am working on is the way that I've seen myself as separate. Like the way I've othered myself. Mm -hmm. The self-marginalization. Yeah. And it's that mindset shift. It's, it's the awareness of noticing it first and then going, Oh, that's not true. Right. Our, our mind can have a lot of negativity and untrue thoughts. Yeah. You know, and the, and the other thing that I'll just name too is that panel that you were speaking to, you know, how to be a courageous leader in the midst of climate change. I was very aware that all folks on that panel were white, cisgendered folks with a fair bit of privilege, but they all worked incredibly hard to get to where they, you know, are now today and I see them as embodying consciousness, inclusion, and and how they're showing up in the world, regardless of the color of their skin. So they still felt right for me to bring them to speak. Yeah. Yeah. When Josh talked about his experience during COVID of reconnecting to nature and getting into the ocean mm-hmm. and feeling it, like feeling it's living, breathing organism, Mm -hmm. I really got the sense of a, of a deep honoring Mm -hmm. that he came out of the kind of isolation of pandemic time, reestablishing that connection, realizing that we are all human animals Mm -hmm. and we are not separate from one another. And, you know, his story is very interesting, which he didn't talk so much about on the podcast, but I have gotten to know him in the last few years of writing the book. So it took me about four and a half years to write it. And 
he grew up in Alabama, very like impoverished area of that state. Um, he's the child of a single, single mother. He's very privy to the challenges of eating a healthy diet when there's not a lot of money, when there's one parent, when there's one source of income. And so the inspiration for just this company that now has millions of funding is a just food system for all. He wants to know that the food products are not only supporting the flourishing of the planet, but the flourishing of people. And you don't need to be making a lot of money to buy them. The soil nutrient, the conversation about soil biology mm -hmm. and creating nutrient rich soil so that we can create food that actually feeds our body. Right. Yeah, that was powerful. Mm -hmm. I'll include a link to that conversation in the show notes. So any of our oh, I'd love that. Yeah. Dive in deeper. Thank you. Yeah. What else do you want to share with our guests before we close? Because I know our time is limited together today. I would just love if people are feeling resonance with this conversation to come and contact me. I'd love to continue the conversation to see how I can be in service of you, um, whether it's in more of a coaching context of how can you be the leader our world needs now, or how can I support you if you're in a leadership role in a company to have more of these kinds of conversations to create more psychological safety, inclusion, to orient your business so that it's aligning with more social justice, environmental responsibility. Um, and if you're wanting to kind of engage more with my community, I, I have a free handbook that you can sign up for at leadfromlight.com that will also get you subscribed to my podcast, Shine which is really having conversations with conscious and inclusive leaders. We talk about, you know, awareness practice. How do we create these qualities on the inside? So we're really showing up in the way that, that Sherry and I are talking about on the outside. And, and I do about two to three a month. So you won't be bombarded, but would love to have you join in on some of those conversations and some of the community offerings I'm cooking up. And just stay in touch. Wonderful. Thank you. I can yeah. tell. I'd love the conversation to go longer. There's so many juicy bits. And when I watch the video on your website, I'm I'm not going to pretend I didn't get choked up. Hmm. And I felt all of the feelings that I felt when we first met hmm. in that breakout room hmm. <laughs> during that. Thank you for reflecting that. Yeah. Yeah. I just appreciate the, the heart that I feel in you and, and, you know, your, your desire to really have a positive impact in your life. Like I, I can feel the healing and the transformation that occurs from just some of the ways that you show up and the spaces that you hold for others. And we need so much more of that. So it's, um, I feel honored that you invited me to have this conversation. I hope that we can continue to connect and support each other and the shifts that are happening in the world. Yes, please. <laughs> yes, please.
Following the recording of our conversation, I had more research to do. Carly mentioned so many resources, the show notes are going to be filled with links, including these six, Lynn Twist and Soul of Money Institute, access to these books, Shine, Ignite Your Inner Game to Lead Consciously at Work and in the World, and Beyond Ally, The Pursuit of Racial Justice. And Carly's podcast. This is the one with a panel of experts on how to be a courageous leader amidst climate change. I'm also going to include a link to the intense and moving documentary about residential schools called Dawnland. This is from 2018, and it's been widely praised for redefining reconciliation and grappling with difficult and painful truths. And of course, access to connect with Carly at leadfromlight.com. If you'd like to take notes, I'll repeat the four domains of psychological safety that need to be present in order for a culture shift to be possible. Number one, is there an openness to have the conversation? Number two, do I feel people have my back? And number three, is it safe to make mistakes? And number four, can I bring my whole self to work? It's so obvious to me that the reason why Carly cares about educating leaders to lead consciously at work is because they influence hundreds, thousands, and millions of human citizens around the planet, and the ripple effect is real. If more humans feel safe to bring their whole self to these up-leveled workplaces with a focus on being of service to others, then the mission of these enterprises will start to include people and planet beyond profit. Yes, please, I want more of that. Until next time, Keep mining and shining that inner gold. And if you need a cheerleader to turn that lead into gold, I love practicing alchemy. Email me directly to set up a call. I am very sherry at gmail.com. That's I A M V E R Y S H E R I at gmail. Tune in next week for more pink noise.